This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Hayley Katzen, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much, Cheryl. Delighted to be in conversation with you. Yeah. Now, where are you? I'm on a, an off-the-grid cattle farm in the Australian bush. I'm mm-hmm. about um, two and a half hours from Byron Bay inland. Um, you know, my closest big town is Casino, the beef capital of New South Wales. Oh, wow. It's about an hour and a half, hour and 15 from me. Right. So you had kind of a, a, an urban lifestyle, if you like. You were living in the city, you had a career, you had, I don't know, uh, whatever it takes to live um, in an urban environment. And you were probably thinking you were going just fine until you did yep. it. Tell me about that. Well, I'm, I am urban. I think I'm urban to my core, although I now realise we all have so many dualities and many dimensions to us. But yeah, I, after migrating from South Africa, where I was a brought up in Johannesburg and then at university in Cape Town. It's a very city life. I lived in Sydney for five and a half years. What brought you here? Oh, look, it was during apartheid. And I come from a Jewish family, you know, diaspora Jews, basically. My grandparents migrated from Lithuania at the beginning of the 1900s. So, you know, it's, it's that Jewish experience. And I don't know if as Jews we have shallower roots than other people, but I think we, we know fear and we know um, a need to keep ourselves safe is probably what I'm aware of in my, the way I read my family's story. Um, my family were able to leave Lithuania and that part of the world before the Holocaust. So they were the yeah, lucky look, ones. Africa, they were the very lucky ones. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the story of South Africa in, you know, we had Sharpville in the sixties, we had Soweto rights in the seventies. And then by the time I was of political consciousness age in the eighties, we were in, you know, state of emergencies a lot of the time, draconian state of emergencies with the apartheid government trying to separate and control and corral and, you know, well, awful atrocities, really. So that was my un- political education was at university. And there was this kind of, I had a deep desire as a someone who wanted to see the world a better place to participate in that national democratic struggle. And also at the same time, you know, I'm no hero, Cheryl. Um, You know, facing up to tear gas and police with quirks and Alsatians training on leads is not much fun, really. I'm sorry, I'm just not that fearless a woman. But um, at the same time that I was in uni working in, um, we had an awful forced removal in 1986 called the crossroads crisis where they just, the government came in and they mowed down people's homes. Um, And so we were giving, providing relief, crisis relief. I worked for a student welfare organization and that was kind of allied to the ANC. Um, So it was great. I I did, did education programs too. So I learned a lot. I was working with all sorts of different people. 
And at the same time that that was happening for me in Cape Town, back in Johannesburg, my mum remarried when I was seven and I have stepbrothers. And during those days, it was the era of um, compulsory conscription. So everybody had to go to the army. And, you know, the stories from those young men who went to the army are awful and the trauma of them having to participate in something that they didn't necessarily agree with or believe in. You know, it's appalling what was happening in Southern Africa in that era. So the stepbrothers, two of the stepbrothers, one had been to the army as a doctor, but the other, they wanted to leave the country. So my stepdad wanted to go. So my mom said, please come with me, Hayley. And I was in two minds, you know, I was just on that brink of, well, at that stage in 1986, when they wanted to come and have a look and put in papers, I would have been just, I think I was 20. Um, So I was still under 21 and they put papers in with me as part of their family unit. My dad signed a letter saying I'd lived with them since I was seven and weird timing. So the day those papers came through, my mother hadn't yet told me they'd come through the permanent residence application was the day my father had a heart attack and died. Oh no. So I fly back to Johannesburg. I was 21 at this stage, just Oh, just before 21. Anyway, I fly back to Johannesburg and my mother's driving me to synagogue that night because I wanted to say Kaddish for my dad. And she says to me, we've been given permission to go to Australia. And I was like, wow. To me in that moment, Australia represented safety. It represented a passport of privilege and safety. And I just felt at that point in my life, I needed to make sure that I could have somewhere where I was physically safe and that I could plan for a future. Because I think when you live in countries where there is a lot of appalling political, yeah, I mean, I don't even know how to describe apartheid. Unrest, yeah, thank you. Um, But also just draconian governments, you know. Mm. Um, You just want to have some way of understanding what the future will be and planning for the future. And, you know, as, as white South Africans and as Jews, we could have gone to Israel, but I'm not really, um, that's not really my thing. So it was kind of where to go. And this was made easy for me. So I was lucky. I got to come and live here. And my mum always said to me, um, it's actually a, a, a fabulous line. It's what Joan Didion uses in her goodbye to all that. Nothing's irrevocable. And it was the line my mother used with me. And I kind of thought I would learn, I would get a handle on the Australian social security system so I could go back to South Africa and I could help set up a system, which is what we really needed there. Wow, that's ambitious. (laughs) I know, I am. It's like if you can't want to change the world when you're young, then forget it. What have you got? (laughs) So I was really hopeful. But, of course, you know, you come, you live here. I came out within a few months of coming to live in Australia and, you know, then my life took off on another trajectory and I I did cons- I went back occasionally my mum was still living in South Africa during my first year here I went back to see her and then she came the following year um but there was just no ways that um it made sense for me to return and you know often I've thought oh Hayley did you make the right decision because I love that country I think we love something about our birthplace mm-hmm. and oh, I, I heard that Cheryl, I heard that you have Lebanese background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lebanese migrant, yeah. Yeah, my parents um, uh, were both born in Lebanon um, and they came out, it's it's an amazing story, they came out firstly on a boat with my two older sisters and they stayed and they had me and my other sisters, so they had two in the middle, but then they went back with four and then they flew back with six. But, you know, I mean, yeah, wow, right? Um, uh, mm. But I still, um, and, and you'll be the same. I mean, I was 
probably I think around six when we settled here, but I still feel more Lebanese than I do Australian. And I, I went back to Lebanon one time. I've been back a couple of times now, but I went back, I think it might've been my first time. Yes, it was my first time. And I was so excited about being in a place where I thought I belonged and I thought that that's who I was. And I remember my grandmother taking my hand and taking me around to introduce me to the neighbours. And she said, this is my granddaughter. She's Australian. And I couldn't stop crying. Because I thought, oh, Oh, I know. I know. I think I'm Lebanese, you know, and that's identity, isn't it? Uh, Well, and that's that's in a way what I've tried to write about in this book, although mostly it's set in on the farm and it's about my challenge in adjusting to this life. But I think it's that whole notion of when we have these ruptures in some way and then what comes in their place. For me, the displacement from South Africa led to a hunger for belonging. Like, where did I fit? Mm. You know, I love that country. And interestingly, I hung on to my passport. I managed to get dual citizenship and I kept it for years and years. And then you know, once it got to the point where I'd lived half my life in Australia and I had come more to terms with this life, I thought, no, I'll just let it lapse. And it was so interesting because when I went back to South Africa um, for a, an inquest into my stepmother's murder a few years ago, I flew in on my Australian passport and my partner, Jane, who's Australian, was with me. And when I got through customs at South Africa, they said to me, border control, they said, where's your South African passport? Because now their system is, you know, all electronic like ours too and I said well I let it lapse and she said you can't you have to renew or revoke Hayley and that was a really pivotal moment for me that trip I mean it was a time you know it was 2018 when I was able to actually I lived in South Africa for three months because I was going to court every day I was trying to write and work on the story of Janae's murder and what you know how what all that was about but the um the interesting thing was I the inquest blew out, so I had to stay longer. Jen came back to Australia. And it was easier for me to renew my South African passport than to get another visa. So I went through that whole process and it was almost like, you know, this is so core to my being, this place, even though I've not been here for transition and I feel like my South Africa, the one that I'd hoped would exist is an imaginary homeland. Um, you know, you are still so fundamentally connected, um, not you just are. to the few people. You are. I, I went, my, my most recent trip was a few years ago now, but here I was traveling, you know, on an Australian passport. I do have Lebanese citizenship, but I travel with an Australian passport and, you know, place of birth is Sydney, you know, country of birth is Australia. Mm. And I was going through customs and the custom guy, he was like, you know, looked like he was about 25. He looked at my passport and he said, welcome to your homeland. And oh. I could not stop <gasps> crying. I spend a lot of time crying over there because it's like the what ifs. Do you find that? Oh, it's all the what ifs. But isn't everything about life that? It's the sliding doors, you know, and I've got this this gorgeous little etching on my wall, which is, it's it's of Hadrian's Gate. And it's, who's to say it's the right gate? You know, like we open various doors, we make various choices. And, you know, we could have made so many different ones. And that's what I've been aware of in this life on the cattle farm. You know, I have had all the educational and economic resources to choose not to be here. And in a way, those choices have probably made life a bit trickier for me because I thought, what the hell am I doing here? None of my skills are really of this environment. You know, Um, that's what I think of you. What the hell are you doing there? (laughs) (laughs) What? 
But it's extraordinary. <laughs> you know, in a way, at the moment, as this book is, you know, as I hold this book, Cheryl, I feel like I'm holding my life. Of course, mm. it's not all of me and it's not all of Jen, but it is the journey of coming. Well, no, I hate that word journey. I don't know why I used it. It is the process of coming to that understanding of the richness of life, whichever one of those gates or pathways we take. And, you know, I've been lucky to be able to get to that place. Um, I think to go through a hard time, if you get the opportunity for the healing and renewal, you're lucky. And that helps the hard time that's been. And I think... I need to hear about your transition, right? So tell me what you were doing. So I I worked, I graduated um, with an arts degree and then law. Mm -hmm. And so I, my passion was administrative law. So that's like social security attacks, all the interactions individuals have with government. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, worked for a government tribunal, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. I studied and worked part-time. Did, got very involved in lesbian and gay legal rights activism and working for community legal centres in Sydney. It was sort of my Australian education. How do you learn about a new place? Mm. You know, for me, it was through law. It was work, through working in community legal and social security-based stuff. Um, and then I, we, we did a whole lot of um, research into legal recognition of lesbian and gay relationships. So I was working too hard and I crashed. Um, burnt out and I moved in 94 I moved to Byron Bay I wanted to beautiful one of those moments where you think no I'm not going to live this way I'm going to I I always knew the traditional professional path that I'd been raised for was not really mine um, but I didn't quite know why so I moved up here and I had some time off before I then went right back into it and became an academic at Southern Cross University So I taught welfare law, administrative law, wrote a textbook, did all that sort of stuff, and then did a very big research report on police responses to breaches of apprehended violence orders for women in a regional area. And that kind of hammered me. Mm. Um, Yeah, so I crashed and I needed time out. And a counsellor said to me, go and do something creative, Hayley. And I went and I did an acting workshop and they all said to me, I'll give up your day job. And I thought, jeez, you know. Mm. what is this life for? Maybe mm. I should. Mm. And my boss was like, you've got a permanent position at a university. What are you doing? Just have a little break. You need a rest. The research was too much. It was a big project um, and a distressing project. Anyway, I, I took leave and I kept acting and studying acting. And I was just, you know, I've always been passionate about the power of stories. And I was frustrated by all the law reform work that I'd done in about three or four different areas. And, you know, law reform reports often sit on shelves. How do we really make change? And so I thought if I can write a play and animate stories on stage, then maybe it reaches hearts and minds. So I kind of, that was my change of direction. Of course, you know, I was never going to be an actor. It's a bit old to start and um, Byron Bay is not the place to do it and I'm probably not good enough. But (laughs) then I went into... Um, I wrote a play. The acting teacher suggested I write a play. So I wrote a play which was um, six dramatic monologues. It was a one-woman show and it was basically attitudes to asylum seekers. It was in the era when we had lots of kids in detention in Australia. Don't we um, still have lots of kids in detention? Yeah, we do. We yeah. do. But it was it was a particularly, you know, this is back in 2003, four. Mm. Um, the play was shown in five. So it was... I mean, it's as horrifying as it is now, really. But I watched that play on stage and I just thought, this is far too scary. You're watching everybody shift and moving and are they bored and um, too anxious for that. So, and that, during all of this, I'd been with Jen. Um, we met when I was still teaching at the uni. 
And I refused. I thought I would never live here on this farm. I want community. I want work. So then, unfortunately, after five years, um, we were at that crossroads and I thought, will I go back to the city? Will I put down roots here again? What will I so do you were in Byron for five years? Yeah, or Bangalore. I was Bangalore. You know, closer right. to Lismore so that I could easier transport-wise. Um, and then, bizarre, the house burned down. And that was a very devastating time. Jen had been here, when we got together, she'd been here about 16 years mm-hmm. and she built everything on the property. Um, and it was a strange thing, Cheryl. I think when you have bushfire, it either tears you away from a place or admits you to it. Mm-hmm. And in, in my case, to my and everybody's absolute astonishment, suddenly this place ceased to be that backwater, dry, you know, isolated place it was an isolated place but I I decided to give it a go and it was that notion too of you know you live separately from a partner for years what's the relationship at some point it needs to shift from playmates into something else and so I came we rebuilt you know amazing process we milled the timber on the property with someone and then two of the local chaps and Jen put the house built the house to lock up in three weeks and then she and I finished it off and I didn't realise that the finishing off is actually the big part of the job. Mm. It's terrible. And I'm so, I'm not useless, I've got to stop using that word, but I'm not skilled in all those manual things and I'm impatient. So, you know, Jen's That's thing is always That's an understatement, is it? I'm not <laughs> skilled in all those manual things. I mean, I have zero, <laughs> zero ability, but I like your attitude. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. They're huge transitions, isn't it? Like South Africa, Sydney, Sydney, Byron. I mean, talk about belonging. I, you know, I love going to Byron, um, but I always feel like a tourist there, even though, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm a, you know, I live here. But there is such a sense of community there that I, it feels like other people are excluded. I mean, I don't know if that's the case, but that's how you feel when you're there. And then you do that and go into a rural setting. I mean, you know, you've done a lot in a short period of time in terms of movement. Yeah, I think it's the cultural um, distances that are sometimes greater than the geographical. And I think, you know, you've got, you come from Lebanese, so that's, you've got language as something at play. I'm an English speaker, Australia is English speaking, supposedly. Mm. You know, we, we share language, but really I've found some of the cultural differences. And also I come from a Jewish family. We're a secular family, but I come from a very particular world of, um, intellectual, professional, very non-manual. <laughs> and so there were all those things that I feel have humbled me and educated me amazingly, really. Um, but really the move, 
I think the biggest move for me has been from the coast and a world of work and a scaffolding that supports all my interests and preoccupations Mm -hmm. and admires them, really, um, to coming out to live here. And for a girl who's always sought approval and thought that's how one belongs, I think that's been my ultimate learning was coming into an environment where I felt so just not good at stuff. Um, and of course know, I found my place. I want to know the guttural gut feel. Like when you made that decision and you landed in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, to me that just, it feels so frightening. I mean, I didn't cope in, in the five weeks of isolation in my apartment in Sydney, you know, <laughs> and because I just couldn't, I couldn't cope with the no people, right? So you've mm-hmm. gone from people into mm-hmm. an environment where really it's just you and one other. Did you have sleepless nights? Oh, look, I think, okay, so just a few points of clarification. There is a, there is a small community here, sure. um, probably about 80 permanent residents, um, who I would see most days would be Jen. Yeah. I see a neighbour if I walk on the road with the dogs, then I'll, someone might stop for a through-the-car-window conversation. But really, I could walk all those fabulous images through this time of, you know, empty streets. I'm pretty used to empty streets. Um, and then we've got, an, you know, unfortunately, the last remaining elderly bachelor brother, Frankie, who's 83 now. He's, the others have all died in the time I've been with Jen. So Frankie's the only person I would see on a regular basis. I would walk over to check on him or he'd, you know, we'd have some interaction. Jen sees many more people than me, you know, over at drinks at Frankie's in the afternoon or when she's out mustering or working. Um, and then, you know, we've very active members of our fire brigade. So every four, you know, two months, there's that. Every second Friday night, there's bar and barbecue at the hall. So there are opportunities, few opportunities, but, a few, you know. But for me, it has been often a lot of time, days and days and days and days or weeks without seeing others. Mm. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's interesting because it has changed in the last few years, which is what's always so interesting when you write a book because the lens of now would be slightly different from the lens of then and it's, you know, life changes. But um, I was frightened when I first came here, that sense of just feeling like no one could hear me mm. if I yelled. Mm. And for some years, Jen's mum was in a nursing home on the Gold Coast and she would go for, you know, a week or 10 days at a time and I would stay on the farm on my own. And I did go to town to my friends um, sometimes, but then I just felt like an extra in their lives and I needed to be at my desk and keep writing fiction if I was ever going to make it. So I chose to stay on the farm alone and, oh, my God, I was scared, Cheryl. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel silly saying it now because I'm more comfortable. I would be. Yeah. You know, even the bush, even the wildlife, it's like I just am not that competent or experienced. You know, I hadn't ever seen an echidna till I came I was with Jen. Um, So all sorts of things like that. Um, And, you know, that thought of should someone drive up the driveway, our house is a a fishbowl, really. If I turn on the lights, they can see right in. How do I get away if it's an intruder? That was my fear, really. So, yeah, that was scary. But I I did have glimpses into that amazing thing of watching oneself when one is alone. So having some sense of... Actually, no one's watching me. I can do exactly as I please. And this is kind of interesting. What happens when we aren't in response? So, you know, I did, and I was working, of course. I was, you know, determined to try and become a writer now that I'd decided acting wasn't the bag and all wasn't the bag. Um, I don't know what I would have done here without my work. 
um, I think I think work, particularly as a writer, is a great companion and reading. But yeah, I was I was frightened, um, and also just the other challenge has been finding people who share my passions. You know, people are so lovely to me here, and they always have been. You know, but I can chat about making chili jam or the plants in the garden, but it's not really what's going to light me up big time. Mm. Um, so that's been a challenge for me. And I have recently met, I went off to a pottery studio 45 minutes away and I have made, made friends now with some people who we can talk the language of life and creativity, um, even though we use different mediums. And that, I suppose, has made me feel even more of a sense of belonging here. Now I've created my life here. For for many years living here, when I first came to live here with Jen, I felt like I had to find my work and my place on this farm. So work to me is always a big part of belonging. You know, it's what I've always done wherever I am. And here it was like, gee, what work am I going to do? So I would go and try and help dig fence posts in this rocky ground and, God, then I'd have to really see the physio. You know, I'm terrible at chopping wood if it's hardwood, all those things. So then I tried the kitchen and, you know, that makes sense. But, of course, how weird. All of a sudden these two lesbians are having these sorts of roles, basically. And Jen's an ex-home science teacher. She's a wonderful cook and she cleans like a dream. So, you know, suddenly there's me and also always this little not chip on my shoulder, but this terror and shame about my white South African past. So I didn't want to be the spoiled princess. I wanted to show that I could do the work that I grew up having other people do for me. Um, So all my own stuff. This is a book about an internal landscape and how it frames and colours and external, really. But so I thought I had to be the farmer's wife and I've never wanted to be a wife, Cheryl. I'm, I'm an independent woman with my own story. And Jen and I have always valued that in each other. Our autonomy is important, although we're a very tight and harmonious partnership. But suddenly this is the life I'm living. Okay, so I bake scones for the fences and, you know, do all that. But, um, yeah, I kind of I got to the point where I felt, although I'd been writing and writing and having various levels of success and not success, um, I just, I felt like I was losing myself here. Mm. You know, who was I really? And so I did take off and I've been lucky to have been able to, you know, circumstances led me back here. We didn't split up, but I went to Melbourne to house it for some months in 2016. And then causes and conditions brought me back to the farm and love um, to be with Jen. But I've been lucky to, in a way, do over and find a way to live Haley's life here, which is about my passions and preoccupations rather than Jen. So I can go and work in the cow yards now. And instead of feeling frustrated and upset that I'm not as good as she is, it's fine. I'm not yeah, giving myself fine. a hard time anymore. Yeah. You, know, you know, it's it's when we're okay in ourselves, we're okay. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to refer to this because, you know, in Sydney we've just come out of isolation, if you like. I mean, we're still social distancing, of course. Um, but in that time, and I can't remember how long it was now, seven or eight weeks, I really discovered things about myself that I didn't know. It was a real revelation, you know. I mean, I've, I've lived on my own um, for a very long time, but living on your own in isolation is a very different story. And mm. there were so many things, you know, the joy of food, go, I, I love cooking, and the joy of food just left me entirely, reading left me entirely. So there was a lot that went with it. Do you think there was something for you 
in that discovery? Like, what was it for you? Because in a sense, I know you're not totally isolated, but it is a total turnaround, a total life change. What is it that you discovered about yourself? I think, um, I think I discovered I could rely on myself eventually, but it's taken a hell of a long time to get to that. I think, Mm. I think I really did feel a sense of losing myself. I mean, I'm certainly so deeply aware how connection is what feeds me. Mm. You know, I can connect with all my, you know, 15, 16, 17th century old writers, but, you know, I really need this. And even these Zooms, you know, just to see another person, to have the spontaneity of idea and heart that comes in when we engage with someone on a more face-to-face level. All of those things. I mean, I think, you know, I obviously had all sorts of things I needed to work through in myself and I've spent a lot of years writing, but a hell of a lot of years in therapy too, (laughs) a lot of counselling, trying to work and sort out some big stuff. Um, But I think it was also, you know, I've lived in an area where when I first asked Jen what the people here were like, you know, what why did people come here? Were they escaping? And Jen said to me, they're anarchists, a lot of them. You know, they want to live by their own rules. And I think I'd been living by so many other people's rules for such a long time. And even though I was in some ways, you know, untethered from various spheres that had always been mine, I think I was trying to find my own way. And in a way, you know, the book is the culmination of that. But this is, I don't know if you've ever read Robert McFarlane. He's a beautiful, yeah. you read some? No, I haven't, but I listened to a podcast recently, A Call from Paul, and he interviewed him, I think, and I was thinking I must read Robert ah. There you go. You um, must read Robert McFarlane. I must look that up. Yes. Um, there's a beautiful book called The Old Ways, and in it he writes, he's a place writer, yes. he says, we are adept if occasionally embarrassed at saying what we make of places but we are far less good at saying what places make of us. For some time now, it has seemed to me that the two questions we should ask of any strong landscape are these. Firstly, what do I know when I am in this place that I can know nowhere else? And then vainly, what does this place know of me that I cannot know of myself? And I mean, they, they're complex wow. <laughs> and they're interesting. But, you know, I keep thinking about that during this COVID lockdown because I think of you know, so many people such as yourself who are alone in a flat, you know, we have vista and space and an amazing bush landscape, which is changing all the time. But, you know, what is that place helping us to know about ourselves? And I think this environment has taught me I can rely on myself. You know, I need connection. I long for connection. But I am actually all right in myself. And that's the the coming to that sense of home and belonging inside myself, which I think is for me the strength of self-acceptance perhaps. You know, I dealt with so much shame for such a very long time about who I was. And all of those coming to home and belongings inside me, knowing that this is home is, is where my heart is. It's not Jen. You know, of course, she's hugely important and makes such a massive Ah, oh, she's a beautiful part of my life, but it's it's where I am. It's me, mm-hmm. and if I can be okay and walk through my world as myself, um, then I'm all right. And it's this place that I think has taught me that because I have had all this time away from the work pressures. My mum always used to say her technique was distract yourself. That's how you live life, and I've always thought that's not right. 
We need to look at ourselves. We need to look at our stories. We need to fathom them, make sense of all those things. And in a way, that's what writing, as soon as I shifted to nonfiction, before that, fiction, I think, was just a facade for myself. But certainly the nonfiction writing has helped me shift in those ways. And I think, yeah, I think writing helps us to look deeper into ourselves. And as that's reading what, does. You know, the time alone gives, as reading does. Yeah. Yeah. And especially when you resonate with something. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough, Haley, for your time. Uh, the memoir is called Untethered. Um, it's a beautifully written book, uh, really lovely. You are a writer and uh, all the best with it. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. 
Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.